0: Welcome to Amici, News and Insights from the New York Courts. I'm John Carr. The Richard C. Fela LGBTQ Commission of the New York Courts sponsors Public Pride Month events in every region of the state every June, except this year with a pandemic that wasn't feasible. However, the Fela Commission and the Office of Diversity and Inclusion held a special Skype event on June 18th, moderated by Tony Walters, Director of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. In this podcast, we bring you the audio portion of that presentation. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Uh, I just want to say um, hello to those people who I have not seen in many, many, many months due to this pandemic. Hope all is well with your respective families.
2: Can now read on the New York Law Journal website uh, that just talks about uh, not necessarily thinking of ourselves in silos at this moment. And um, recommitting to and redoubling our efforts uh, for just diversity and inclusion at this really um, uh, fraught moment uh, that we're all uh, experiencing. Um, With those sort of initial announcements out of the way, let's um, let's talk about some some good news, though. Um, it's just been uh, an incredible week, um, including today's big decision from the Supreme Court. Um, and this week has really brought home the importance of an independent judiciary and uh, smart lawyering um, that really um, uh, can um, take, um, you know, take a, a little um, idea or a little theory and run with it all the way to a victory in the um, in the Supreme Court. It's just incredible. Um, mm-hmm. Just a little bit about the FAILA Commission. Um, It was created in December 2016 to promote equal participation and access throughout the court systems by all persons, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression. Um, To fulfill this mission, we do events like this. Um, We try to promote and enhance diversity um, and the presence of our LGBT judicial and non-judicial personnel within the court system. Uh, I want to give another shout out to my co-chairs, past and present, and members of the Commission who are with us on Skype today too. Uh, I'm going to try to cover approximately 55 years of the LGBT civil rights movement in uh, less than 10 minutes. Um, So, uh, you know, please uh, throw, it's going to be a lot of material in a short amount of time, so please uh, feel free to ask questions for the Q&A if I uh, skip over or uh, confuse anything um, in the next few minutes. Um, But let me start with 1964. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 is the statute uh, that the Supreme Court was interpreting uh, this week. Um, The history of the statute, um, you know, basically, and most people know this, the the primary thing Congress was, you know, trying to eradicate or, you know, uh, work to eradicate by passing the bill um, was racism, uh, sort of discrimination against uh, people of color, the African American community. Um, This was sort of the height of the African American Civil Rights Movement um, that really resulted in uh, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, you know, passing. when it was being debated on the house floor um at the last minute um an amendment uh was added by uh congressman howard smith from virginia congressman smith was uh basically a known opponent of the of the legislation he was a known sort of racist um and there's a lot of debate amongst historians about whether you know he added Um, sex to uh, Title 7 of the bill in order to try to be a poison pill that would bring down the whole uh, bill. Um, Basically there were four characteristics that were originally in the bill, race, color, religion, and national origin, and uh, sex was added um, to the list at the very sort of end of the House uh, uh, debate on the floor of the House. Uh, It passed and it made it into the bill, it then went to the Senate where they didn't change anything, um, and LBJ signed it. Um, and so there's really, because there's so little legislative history about um, what this was supposed to mean um, once it got into the into the legislation, um, there's been a battle in the courts ever since then uh, about what it means. What does uh, discrimination because of sex Uh, legally mean. Um, Now Title VII has really been the gold standard for um, uh, civil rights legislation, for employment uh, discrimination legislation. It's really the most important um, uh, bill that's ever uh, been passed to address, uh, you know, fairness in the workplace. but as I mentioned, uh, it's been a very long struggle over the past 56 years um, to try to, uh, for for all the federal courts, but especially the Supreme Court, uh, to grapple with um, what, what is off limits now that uh, discrimination because of sex is prohibited under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, Uh, To quickly now bring us forward to the U.S. Supreme Court, Um, as many of you I'm sure know, the magic number in the Supreme Court is five. (laughs) You need five votes out of nine uh, to win uh, a Supreme Court case. Um, You know, the U.S. Supreme Court has been and will continue to be the most important policymaker uh, for the LGBT community, period. Over the last 25 years, the Supreme Court has been engaged in a project, um, and when you look at it sort of broadly, uh, a project of ending double standards in American law for the LGBT community. Um, Just to give you, basically there have been four real landmark uh, decisions, and this will be the sort of fifth, this is now the fifth in that series, uh, but there have been four landmark decisions uh, before uh, this Monday's decision, and just sort of bringing you up to speed on on what those did, I think is important too. Um, in 1996, in Romer versus Evans, um, the U.S. Supreme Court said, you know, basically, and in, it involved a amendment to the U.S. or to the Colorado state constitution uh, that forbid um, adding LGBT protections to any state or local um, non-discrimination ordinance or statute. Um, and the Supreme Court said, you know, in this country we have a tradition of, of, of allowing us, you know, everyone has a chance to petition their government to try to enact non-discrimination protections. It's acceptable that only the LGBT community is uh, forbidden under this amendment in Colorado from uh, pursuing uh, non-discrimination protections in state and city law. Um, 2003, Lawrence versus Texas. Uh, Americans generally have uh, have a right to privacy in their bedroom, um, you know, except for the LGBT community under this uh, uh, statute and criminal statute in Texas. Um, you know, that was no longer acceptable. Um, in 2013. Um, Americans generally, um, if they're married under state law, are married for federal purposes as well. 2013, uh, the Supreme Court said it's unacceptable uh, for only the uh, same-sex couples to be denied uh, recognition by the federal government for their marriages. Uh, and finally, and probably the most famous uh, decision in 2015, Obergefell versus Hodges, um, You know, the Supreme Court said, you know, Americans generally have a fundamental right to marry the person they choose, and it's no longer acceptable that only uh, same-sex couples can can be uh, denied the right to marry. Um, so, those are the four big uh, decisions in a nutshell. Um, again, what scared a lot of people uh, is that the the author of those four decisions uh retired in twenty eighteen, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Um Romer and Lawrence were 6'3, but Windsor and Obergefell were 5'4. Um and uh, you know, this when this case got to the court, uh, it was accepted for review over a year ago, um, last April, um, you know, I think there was a lot, a lot of terror in the LGBT community about how we could get to um five votes in the Supreme Court, uh, no matter the uh, the sort of merits of our, uh, the case. Um, you know, a lot of people thought that was the ball game when Justice Kennedy retired in 2018. Um, I will say I included in the materials uh, an article I wrote for the local LGBT newspaper in New York City um, after attending the argument back in October. And I had this crazy prediction that we would get uh, Justice Gorsuch and Chief Justice Roberts to, um, uh, to 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 join the four more traditional liberals and maybe ruling in favor of the plaintiffs here. Um, it was just a sense of, you, you could sort of tell Justice Alito was was not gettable, but uh, Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch, to me, seemed like they were playing more more of a devil's advocate when uh, the the lawyers for the the gay and trans plaintiffs were, were at the lectern um, and didn't really just just from the tone of their voice. If you read the transcript, you might not get the sense. But for me, when I Heard sort of the tone of their voice and their sort of their body language. It just seemed like they were maybe gettable, uh, despite uh, um, their their previous records. And let me just uh, explain sort of their previous records. In 2015, when we won uh, Obergefell, uh, Justice Roberts wrote. Chief Justice Roberts wrote and then read this dissent from the bench which if you follow the Supreme Court, it's extremely rare for someone to read a dissent from the bench and and now everything is just posted online because of the pandemic. So we don't have sort of the the, the theater of decision day um, in the way that we used to this year. But Justice Roberts read a dissent from the bench where he ended, which he ended by saying, you know, the constitution has nothing to offer basically the LGBT community uh, in his view. Although strangely enough, during the argument for Obergefell, Chief Justice Roberts also asked um, a question about if Tom can marry Sue, uh, but Tom cannot marry Andy, is not that sex discrimination. So he seemed to understand this theory um, in the previous cases and and why... um, uh he he suddenly believes in uh sex discrimination as a valid theory for the lgbt community now and didn't five years ago i think is a very interesting question um i'll just say too justice gorsuch um you know wrote in his first year on the bench wrote uh wrote a dissent about there was a case that arose after obergefell about whether obergefell extended to married same-sex couples um um, who have children whether they can both be put on the birth certificate and there was an issue that came up from an Arkansas about whether uh, couples there married couples there generally had a presumption of being both listed on the birth certificate and the issue was whether Obergefell really commanded uh, commanded Arkansas to list both couple both parents on the birth certificate and he wrote a very sort of uh, uh, unnecessary dissent in that case uh, explaining that he didn't think um, Obergefell necessarily meant that. You know, when the the gay baker, uh, the case involving the bakery that wouldn't make a cake for same-sex couples was at the court um, two years ago, um, he also wrote, uh, you know, the baker ended up winning that case on sort of technical grounds, but, um, you know, Justice Gorsuch wrote a, a, a dissent again in that case saying, you know, here's another reason why I think the Baker should win. Um, so there was a lot of reason to believe Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch would not come along for this ride. Um, so that's really why it was such a stunning um, moment uh, on, on Monday when we got the decision. Um it's an extremely formalistic uh, majority opinion, if you've if you've taken a, a look at it. Um, but basically, it involves a theory called textualism. Um, you know, a lot of the judges and lawyers on this uh, on Skype with us now know know a little bit about this. But basically, the idea is that you only look at the words in the statute when you try to figure out what what uh, a statute means. You don't think about, you know, why why congress passed it or what they were hoping to achieve you just look at the the bare words themselves and try to take take them where where uh they'll take you um and justice gorsuch said you know if you really just um look at if you apply a but for test and just swap out um uh, the sex of the plaintiffs in these cases now there are three three cases that were all decided in one decision here on Monday. Two of them involved gay men. One of them involved a transgender woman. Um, and Justice Gorsuch said, um, if you just swap out the sex of these people for the the opposite sex, um, you know, they would not have been fired, um, basically. And that's that's really all that matters. So they passed sort of the but-for test of their sex being you know, an an inescapable uh, reason for why they were um, fired from their jobs. Um, Some interesting observations about the case. Um, You know, I will say Justice Gorsuch sort of, he he uses the word homosexual a lot in the opinion, um, which is a little dated. I don't think most uh you know gay people today don't really refer to themselves as homosexual anymore he also leaves the b word uh for lg you know out of the lgbt uh family out of uh, out of his opinion so i'm hoping there's not 20 years of litigation about whether uh gay and lesbian people co- are covered but uh but the amazing thing is um you know, we all of a sudden got LGBT workplace protections in all 50 states instantly. Um, I mean, there's been an incredibly long struggle over the past, um, you know, 50 years or so to get uh, workplace protections for the LGBT community. Um, I don't know if anybody was watching watching uh, the wonderful miniseries the past couple months on Hulu uh, called Mrs. America which is about the battle over the ERA, and and, uh, Congresswoman Bella Abzug uh, is featured prominently in the miniseries, you know, but Congresswoman Abzug tried to get, uh, you know, an amendment, basically tried to amend Title VII uh, for 50 years ago to add, you know, the words, uh, to add the LGBT community to, uh, you know, the legislation explicitly. but, you know, over the past 50 years, it's been, uh, you know, we could never get a House, the Senate, and the President to all agree at the same time to amend the legislation. So we've really been sort of left um, left adrift uh, as to whether or not we were or we're not covered uh, with uh, under sex discrimination but as i sort of previously said you know the supreme court has been engaged in ending double standards uh in the law for the lgbt community and it was previously the case that everyone was protected uh, uh, everyone who was protected by Title VII was protected against sex discrimination except for the LGBT community. And what they really did on Monday was end this LGBT, you know, this unnecessary and sort of judicially created uh, LGBT exclusion from the, the meaning of Title VII and brought the LGBT community officially uh, within its protections. And it's just an incredible, an incredible thing. I mean, I think if you talk to people, uh, you know, last year we did all these um, events about the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. Uh, If you talk to people back in 1969 about what the order of things, how things would have unfolded um, in the the LGBT civil rights movement, I think a lot of people would have uh, thought or hoped that we would have gotten you know, this moment earlier before some of the other things. And, of course, um, you know, marriage equality and uh, uh, some of the other achievements have been enormously important. But I think uh, if you think back to what people in the early 70s were, were especially worried about, it was just this, uh, uh, this sense that if anyone found out that they were LGBT, they would be immediately fired. Um if you take a look at Justice Alito's dissent, and there's like a 30-page majority opinion, and then there's like 130 pages of dissent, uh, most of it from Justice Alito, but he really pins his um, pins his case on this hypothetical of an employer that has an application form that just has one question, you know, are you LGBT? And if, if that were the only, and he's trying to make the point that uh, sexual orientation and gender identity are distinct concepts from the concept of gender. And I think, um, you know, the thing that I wish Justice Alito would understand perhaps a little bit more is that, um, you know, he also tries to uh, lay out sort of the history of uh, LGBT people, sort of briefly in 1964, to prove the point that Congress couldn't possibly have uh, meant to cover them when they passed uh, the Civil Rights Act. Um, but what I wish Justice Lito would understand is that hypothetical is such as, especially, you know, 50 years ago, um, that hypothetical wasn't just hypothetical, that was the reality was if, if people, uh, you know, found out that you were LGBT, that was a pretty much automatic, uh, uh, that would automatically mean you either didn't get a job or you were fired from your job. I mean, the... I don't have time in this presentation to, to get into the, all the nitty-gritty, but, I mean, the federal government used to especially, um, after President Eisenhower signed this executive order in the 1950s that really required the federal government to uh, hunt for uh, gay employees uh, within the federal government and then, you know, really immediately fire them if they are, there was anything that would possibly lead people to believe that they were LGBT. Um, so it's just such an incredible moment. I mean, really, within um, within the past 10 years, um, to see, you know, we, to see the switch, you know, you can talk about this in a much longer time frame, but within the last 10 years, we go from the military, and of course now we have the, the trans military ban, but to go from the official policy of the federal government being that you have to fire uh, uh, LGBT people from the military to now go to an interpretation of our, our leading uh, civil rights employment discriminis- discrimination statute mandating that, uh, um, that LGBT workplace discrimination is illegal. It's just an incredible, um, an incredible thing that we've accomplished um, in, a, in a sort of relatively short period of time. And, um,
3: you know, there's a lot of
2: interesting implications from this win. Um, I think I've already sort of gone over, probably way over my time. So I'm going to turn it back over now to Not Tony to and the other man. speakers. <laughs> uh, but uh, I hope I've uh, done a good enough job explaining what sort of happened this week and how we got here.
1: Matt, thank you for that um that riveting summary. Um, yes, we're gonna turn this over now to uh Porter Campbell, who's really gonna to speak to um some of the protections that we as a court system have for our employees. Um again, Kayann is the Special Inspector General for Bias Matters. Uh, so she's gonna tell you about how this how how the federal law now actually intersects with what we've already had and we're protected by on the local and um, and state level. can. Good
3: afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Tony, for inviting me to be a part of this panel discussion. Um, so very timely. Um, and thank you, Matt, for that history, some of which I was not aware of, but um, very enlightening. Um, but I was saying that, you know, even though the federal government has just now passed protections for the LGBTQ community, New York State has always been ahead of the game in providing those protections, and as such, the court system has always followed along um, with whatever uh, the New York State executive law um, has provided um, in the you know, in, in that statute. Okay, so
1: and can you can you speak up? You're a little bit low.
3: I'm a little bit low. I'm sorry. Okay, can you hear me a little bit better now? Uh,
1: maybe that mic needs to be closer to.
3: Can you hear me a little bit better?
1: A little bit. Might have to project a little bit. Go ahead.
3: Okay. Okay. So um, what I just wanted to say is that just to tell you a little bit more about what the Office of the Inspector General does is we do investigate complaints of bias within the court system, and that would include everything covered under Title VII. And as Matt mentioned, now that um, sexual orientation and the LGBTQ communities covered under Title 7. Um, you know those are the kind of com- kinds of complaints that we do investigate. Um, we've always done this. The office was created back in 1998, so we have um, been at the forefront with making sure that our employees, as well as court users, um, litigants, uh, attorneys, whomever does business with the court system has had those protections um, in the past. Um, So the office basically consists of um, we have the special, uh, excuse me, the Inspector General Cheryl Spatz and myself, Carol Hamm, who's a deputy, and uh, we have a team of investigators who are assigned uh, to investigate these types of uh, complaints. Anything that falls under Title VII um, or the executive law is the type of things that we would investigate. And as I mentioned to you, um, the executive law also provides for uh, more recently um, was enacted a few years ago to provide protections for gender identity, um, gender expression, and gender dysphoria. I know those are probably some terms that not everyone is familiar with um, but um, trans uh, excuse me, Gender identity specifically has to deal with um, the internal psychological sense of being a man or a woman. Uh, Gender expression is how you express yourself um, outwardly, um, whether or not uh, in their their manner of dress. And then just gender dysphoria actually is a medical condition, um, and it's related to someone having a gender identity that's different from the sex assigned at birth. Um, so those are some of the categories that um, specifically, that's covered under the executive law. It may not be laid out in Title Seven at this time, but the New York State Executive Law, Section 296. Um, and as a result, the court system, we would investigate any complaints falling under those categories. Um, so uh, how do we get our complaints? So we can get them from, uh, either litigants um, if they have an issue with um, someone making a comment or um, now we have enacted um, uh, you can use uh, bathrooms with the gender that you identify with so whomever comes into the courthouse if you are a litigant an attorney a process server if you're using our facilities you're entitled to protection so you can file a complaint Um, We can get complaints through the chief clerk if something is reported to the chief clerk, um, as well as, um, you know, the person themselves, the complainant themselves can come forward and uh, file a complaint. Um, The process of the investigation is such that um, once we get a complaint, we reach out to that complainant, we would conduct an interview. Um, Most likely interview them in person at this time, that may be a little bit more difficult given um, our current situation, Um, but we like to interview people in person. Um, We interview witnesses, Uh, we ask the complainant for any witnesses that they may have uh, to the incident or that know about uh, the incident, as well as finally uh, the subject of the investigation. Um, and just like to point out that it's not necessary um, for uh, the person to, the, for the subject, um, excuse me, for the complainant to be an employee. Um, as long as we have jurisdiction over the subject, that's fine. And also, as well, if we have an employee who's alleging that someone who does business regularly with the court system, say, for instance, an attorney or um, a process server, someone who regularly comes into the building um, and is making some sort of discriminatory type comments um, or behaving in a discriminatory manner to our employees, we can take action because we have to protect our employees um, and make sure they're in a bias-free environment. Um, So those are some of the the steps for the interview uh, process, the investigation process. Once we have completed the investigation, um, we issue a confidential report, and it's confidential to make sure that uh, people are able to speak with us in a frank manner they you know they may feel that if uh, if the complainant knows what they have testified about um, as a witness um, that may cause some sort of um, a friction so we tell everyone and it is that the process is confidential the report that we issue is also confidential and that report is sent to the administrative judge in the court where the incident occurred Um, as well as the Deputy Chief Administrative Judge for that court. And some of the findings and recommendations that we can make if we find that the allegations that have been made were substantiated could include anything from retraining or training if that person did not get that in the first instance, Um, diversity training. um, It could be informal counseling formal counseling, um, or more serious recommendations uh, such as suspension or possibly termination. Um, Of course, there is a process for the formal disciplinary measures that um, counsel's office um, would undertake, but those are some of the um, possible outcomes if we find that that person, the subject has engaged in some sort of uh, discrimination Um, or, you know, bias. Um, If the person is a non-employee, if the subject is a non-employee, say for instance, if the subject is an attorney and we find that that attorney has engaged in inappropriate behavior towards our employee, um, we can refer that attorney to the attorney grievance um, as well. Obviously, we don't have jurisdiction over whether or not You know um, to discipline them as an employee but if they're an attorney we can certainly refer that to the appropriate grievance committee Um, if it's to the point where we think that it is actually criminal um, we can refer it to the district attorney's office Um, so that's um, and if it involves a judge which we also do have um, jurisdiction to conduct an investigation um, we can refer the matter after our investigation to the Commission on Judicial Conduct. Um, so those are some of the avenues that we have um, in the event that it's a non, um, non-employee who's the subject. And of course, if it's just um, a litigant who, um, you know, who regularly does business, we can somehow, you know, make sure. That person, when they come into the building, no longer interacts in an inappropriate manner um, towards our employee, just to make sure they're protected at all times. Um, So, you know, that's the steps. Those are the steps, and the IG's office, um, we are here um, all the time, you know, to take complaints, um, the telephone, whether by email, you know, we are open.
1: Sorry, Judge Winslow, yes, I see your question. Um, we're gonna have Kay Ann, uh answer that at the conclusion of the presentation. Um, but right now we're gonna hear from R. Lewis Tanner Speaks, who is a senior court clerk and the president of the Pride Alliance of New York State courts.
4: Thank you, Tony. And it's actually Speaks Tanner, but I sometimes get that. That's okay. I'm
1: dyslexic in the, in the virtual, in the virtual <laughs> world.
4: So I started in the court system about four years ago. So I'm relatively new um, in the court system. But prior to coming to the court system, I worked in retail management almost my entire life. And I had been out um, throughout that period. And I'm going to talk about my lived experience as as a gay employee. So not necessarily everyone experiences the same things um, as I do. Though being out is not a on off switch so to so to speak. It's on a continuum. It's a process. You can be out to yourself, your best friends, close friends, immediate family, or entire family, um, or cl- even close work friends, or anyone you encounter. And so it's always a process. It's always something that you are making a decision to do or not do. And many LGBTQ people choose to be as visible as they want to be, Um, though some of the people that don't have that opportunity are what we would say more flamboyant or the ones that have characteristics that, you know, are naturally you know, identify themselves as not being um, hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine, depending on uh, the gender that they are expressing. I've had my share of harassment and um, experiences in previous work, uh, in previous jobs, especially when I was much younger and didn't know how to handle the situations. Uh, Thankfully, attitudes of most New Yorkers are now positive in the way of LGBTQ rights. After all, Marriage Equality Act was finally passed in 2011, not one of the first, but not one of the last. And then our Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act was finally passed into law in 2019, even though Uh, LGBTQ advocates have been working hard before 2003 when it was first introduced into the New York legislature. So far in my court career I've not experienced any outward prejudice or discrimination. Though at times I do ask myself why a person may have acted or said something in a certain way. Though um, one of the things that for me uh it comes across is that on the phone my voice tends to sound higher than most males and i you know frequently get the you know yes ma'am or she as a pronoun that people use and i have to frequently correct people um in in those instances so i do experience that in in my life as a as a gay man Um, I remember my first day reporting um, to court after the one day of orientation down at, um, I think it was um, 25 Beaver Street at the, I think we did the orientation. And, of course, I was nervous. It would. The court system's a whole new environment for me, and as I was waiting to start the day, sitting, waiting for um, whatever clerk was going to, to do the orientation there, I noticed an employee's desk, and inside a coffee mug were various flags, and one of them being the rainbow flag. So that was a welcome sign for me and it made me feel much better to know that there was going to be an ally, if not a member of the LGBTQ community working inside that building. Um, I later found out there were um, fellow uh, gay and lesbian people who worked in the court, and it made all the difference. In other courts I've been assigned, it's been harder to recognize other LGBTQ folks mainly because everyone works in a separate office um, with separate smaller offices. Um, But finding and knowing that there are other LGBTQ people, co-workers, helps to create a safety net and helps to make you feel more welcome in the environment that you are in. And I know that there are plenty of people that just come in and they just do their business and they don't associate with anyone, but there's a lot that interact with others. And the more visible, uh, for me, the more visible that I can be as a as an LGBT um, person, it makes other people easier for them to come out in whatever degree that they want to come out. And it helps to, to raise everyone up and to make it a positive work environment overall um, and of course it it has been a positive um experience for me being out because when my mother in law was sick and dying, coworkers would ask about her just in the same way that coworkers ask about anyone's family and when I went to Oklahoma for the funeral, they understood so while we have made great strides in um, being accepted and creating a fair workplace, there is a lot more work to do. Um, it can be difficult when others make comments about other LGBTQ co-workers or court users, and it makes me feel uncomfortable. But I do speak out when I can and when I feel it's, it's appropriate, because silence equals agreement in what's being said. And that's certainly not what I want to have happen. And it makes me wonder um, what would happen if I, oh, this is a different thought. I'm sorry. Uh, it may, Sometimes it, I wonder what would happen if I had the courage to paint any of my fingernails a color. Uh, what would people say? Should I care what people say? But I do honor and recognize the badassness of those in the younger, especially in the younger generation, who are willing to push the boundaries of gender conformity and are willing to express themselves as fully as who they are genuinely are. And I look forward to the day when everyone in the court system uses the preferred pronoun of a person as well as a day that everyone can stand with a person who is transgender, and those that are transitioning from one gender expression to the other. Thank you, um,
1: Louis. If you could just speak very briefly about the Pride Alliance, um, you didn't okay, speak great. to, you know, what what that is and how people can get more information about that organization.
4: Sure. So the Pride Alliance actually got started as a gay straight alliance back in 2003. And when I came on board um, in the court system in 2016, it had kind of, um, you know, had kind of been in a dormant phase. And we're now resurrecting it as a Pride Alliance, meaning that everyone is welcome. One of the things is that adding uh, different Uh, the letters as the community keeps on growing bigger and bigger because in many circles uh, it's the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer for the Q and I being intersex um, that um, we needed to rebrand and not be exclusionary. So we're calling ourselves the Pride Alliance. And um, you can find us by going to, you know, emailing us, info at pridealliancenyscourts.org to sign up. We've been having some meetings where hopefully this year we'll be, once we're able to not be physically distant, we'll be having more meetings, but we're going to have some Zoom activities. And um, we want to honor and grow the organization because we want it to be an organization where people are definitely as a resource, people feeling comfortable with who they are, and also being able to advocate um, change um, and be there for when people saying, hey, I'm not sure what happened here. Can you help us out?
1: OK, thank you, Louis. Um, well, that concludes the lecture portion of of the program, but we, we I'm glad that we have uh, some time for some of the questions that have come up in the queue, and also if people have questions, this is the time to ask them. So we'll start with Judge uh, Winslow's question. To and I think KM would be the person to uh, to answer this. Can you explain how a complainant actually files a complaint? Is there access via a website? Um, yes.
3: Um, can you hear me, Tony? I can hear you. Okay, so we are on the website. We are on the intra and internet. And so if you go to the um, Inspector General um, Office portion on the intranet, um, you will find information about the office. You can download the complaint form. I think that complaint form is also on the uh, Office of um, Diversity and Inclusion website. And again, you can also call, there's no, um, you don't have to actually send in the complaint form. If you call our office, we will take the, uh, the complaint over the telephone and that will also start the process.
1: Okay, thank you. And we have another question. Um, what if the person accused, and I get it? this is for K. N. what if the person accused is a supervisor? How is the subordinate kept safe moving forward?
3: okay so we've had that situation you know it it, it has happened and in the event that the subject is a supervisor that would entail us having a discussion with the chief clerk of that court or the district executive to figure out if we do need to reassign the um you know the person temporarily to make sure they're out of harm's way until the investigation has been completed. So we would take steps and we have to ameliorate any further harm. So we would take steps to make sure the complainant um, is no longer being harmed in that situation. So it may entail um, some sort of a reassignment on a temporary basis until we can resolve the issue
1: okay um and i've just been instructed that the mics are now unmuted so if anyone has a question they should feel free to simply ask by speaking and hopefully one of our panelists can answer that question okay well i have a question uh, this is for Kayanne. Um One of the things I think a lot of people have questions about, um, and maybe it, it creates some hesitancy to come forward, is this whole idea of confidentiality in the discrimination complaint process. Can you speak to that and give people some really a concrete explanation of, of what we can and cannot do as it pertains to confidentiality during the discrimination um, investigation process?
3: Okay, well, first we ask um, both the subject and the complainant not to talk about it. That helps going forward because once you start talking about it, other people in the workplace will know about it. I mean, it's fine if you want to tell your family because you're confiding in your family, but to discuss it at work, it kind of, it sometimes may create divisions and people may want to take sides, so that does not help. you know, in the first place. So we would tell everyone, you know, not to discuss it. Keep it confidential amongst yourself. And as far as on our end, it's confidential to the extent that it's uh, practicable. We do have to disclose it to the DE because they need to be aware. And obviously the DE would disclose it to the administrative judge, um, as well as to the appropriate DCHA. They need to be aware of what's going on. Um, in the event we need to take action. So, but we would not thoroughly disclose it to the entire office. Um, When we interview witnesses, we give them the same instructions that they should not discuss it with anyone else and it should be kept confidential. So we do our part. It's usually on the other end that we, you know, sometimes don't have that control, but we do give that instruction that it should not be discussed um,
1: you know, in the office. Okay, thank you. Any other questions amongst our participants? Okay, I see a question here. I'm, I'm, do you see it? Can um, yeah. so okay. So maybe you can. Phrase the question and then answer the question.
3: So I I think they asked about temporary um, reassignment during the investigation and what happens um, in the end, as well as retaliation. So if the final outcome is that we do find that the subject has engaged in some sort of inappropriate behavior um, or discrimination, again, that would entail us, having a discussion with the DE, uh, with the chief clerk, as to whether or not that person needs to be moved. If it's so egregious that we are recommending that person suspension and termination, of course, that's completely different. Um, they may no longer work for the court system. Um, but if it's uh, something that we think that that person needs to be uh, retrained or uh, they need a formal counseling, you know, that, again, that's a conversation that just, it doesn't happen in the back, and we have to reach out to the court um, to make sure that we can figure out where this person can be assigned, um, you know, away from the, uh, the complainant. And retaliation, that's very important. That's something we do tell everyone, you cannot retaliate against that person. Now, retaliation, means that you cannot prevent that person from engaging in work-related activities. Um, I'll get the question, well, what if that person no longer wants to have lunch with me? That's not engaging in work-related activities. So if that person no longer wants to have lunch with you um, or bring you coffee in the morning, um, that's not something you can prevent, but um, it cannot affect your work performance. Um, So if it does, We ask uh, the complainant as well as witnesses to bring that to our attention, and that could form the basis of a new investigation as to whether or not that person has retaliated against um, either the witness or the uh, complainant.
1: Okay, I see another, this is a great question. Um, Because attorneys, court staff, members of the public may not have the benefit of seeing the pride flags on desks or know your rights signage. What steps can the course system take to remain affirming to the LGBTQ community during this digital remote era, however long this may last? And I'm not sure who on the panel would like to take a stab at that. Maybe Matt, um, if you have some ideas on how we could address that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I, 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 I know Sarah, and I'm glad she has this question. Um, you know, it's certainly a challenge that we are thinking hard about. We're trying to remain uh, to build up our presence online and on social media, and um, we are planning um, uh, a strong, um, or, or excuse me, a, 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 a virtual conference uh, in the fall to also um, do some some virtual, uh, add some more virtual programming uh, that we're going to try to advertise sort of far and wide to people outside the court system uh, uh, as well. Um, but I think we really just need to continue um, doing as much training as we can around the state, um, you know, p- making our presence uh, sort of known and 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 you know giving people as many different opportunities to connect with us um, as we can. I mean, one just sort of uh, visible thing, uh, that, and we I included this in the materials uh, today um, are the. The restroom signs that have been put up all over the state uh, since last year, um, which are just sort of a little simple reminder that uh, that the the uh, uh, transgender and gender non conforming people are welcome. In our courtrooms and can use the restroom that uh, best matches their gender identity when they're when they're in our buildings. Um, you know, we're trying, and that, of course now we're finally uh, are, are getting to the point where people are going to start being in our buildings again. So I think the little things count, and also um, uh, the big things as well. We have just got to keep. Uh, uh, working hard to, to think of new and, and innovative ways to, to get our message out there. And we're certainly always uh, encourage people if they have ideas to bring them to us, because we, we don't necessarily pretend we have, uh, 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 we're, we're the, we have all the answers necessarily.
4: Tony, I just wanted to add something. Um, one of the ways that you can do that virtually is when you're talking to someone on the telephone or doing a remote conference instead of automatically assuming a pronoun is to automatically ask what pronoun would you like to be used? I use he, his, him, and I just want to make sure that I address you appropriately and respectfully. I think that goes a long way to realizing that people might not necessarily their expression and their identity might not line up to what uh, others are preconceived ideas of that are
1: okay i see some other great questions uh in in the, in the chat room um one speaks to microaggressions and how best to deal with them in the workplace and i think microaggressions is an area where we probably need to do uh, much more whole scale training i'm not sure everybody even knows or can use c- can utilize microaggressions in, in, a, in a way that everybody understands the definition Um, But but I will say that's something that along the line with implicit bias that hopefully, uh, you know, my office and several other entities within the courts will be looking to uh, human resources to develop more training uh, along those lines. It's obviously a very important um, aspect of how we interact with each other in in the workplace. But um, it's something that probably needs to be defined so that people can understand where you're starting from as a baseline and, and then start to kind of develop strategies on how to deal with microaggressions. So bigger, bigger topic, I think, then we can discuss in a couple of minutes here. Um, I see something about gender-neutral language booklets. Um, if someone wants to get those, or wants to know what those are, uh, contact my office. We will, because I'm sure that's probably online somewhere, but I, I'm not sure where we are as far as having those reproduced in any type of way to take them to... Um, outreach functions or anything like that. But um, if anybody has a question about the gender-neutral language booklet, where it is, how to access that, give someone, give my office a call, diversity and inclusion, and uh, we'll be able to find that for you. Okay. I hear, see a question here. What is an appropriate gender-neutral reflexive pronoun? Um, and I will, Matt, do you want to take a stab at that one?
2: Um, I mean, a a lot of gender non-conforming people use they, them, which has traditionally been a plural um, uh, pronoun, but is increasingly sort of accepted as being a singular pronoun for folks who don't um, uh, use he or she. Um, There's also some creative ones uh, that are sort of uh, idiosyncratic that individuals uh, use, but sort of uh, they, them is sort of the most common one, it, it being used in the singular sense. Okay. I'm sorry, I need to come back to, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, the question wasn't answered. I was asking for a reflexive pronoun. It's not they or them. It's like, is it their self, themselves, emself, something like that? Hello, Matt. Do you have an answer for that? Yeah, I think I think it would be themselves. For singular? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it grammatically, I think we we have to sort of get past the you know the idea that it's a singular. It's traditionally a singular word, but it, in in this contest, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that's how they use the reflexive yeah. uh, version.
4: Matt Skinner, it's Andrea Composto. You are correct. It is themselves.
2: Uh, thanks, Andrea.
1: Okay, great, great questions and great answers. Anyone else? Okay. Well, I, I'd like to thank everyone for participating. This has been absolutely fantastic. We were absolutely floored by the the amount of people that RSVP for this program. Um, So I'm hoping, um, you know, I've helped to allay Matt's concerns about, you know, doing some of these type of things in the future in the virtual workspace. Um, There are materials and content info um, which are available, I believe, with your your invitations. Um, If you have any questions, uh, please feel free to reach out to my office, Diversity and Inclusion, or to the Fairleigh Commission or to KM Porter's IG's office. Well, it's not KM's, Porter's, but you know, the IG's office and the Special Inspector for Bias Matters and also to, um, to Lewis, if you have any questions. Again, thank you. Um, happy remainder of Pride Month. And for those who will be off tomorrow for Juneteenth, happy Juneteenth. With that, thank you and hope everyone stays safe and healthy.
0: Thanks for listening to Amici. You find all of our recent podcasts on the Court System's website at www.nycourts.gov, and you also find a transcript of each interview. If you have a suggestion for an IMICI podcast, let me know. I'm John Carr, and I can be reached at 518-453-8669 or jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime,
4: stay tuned.